The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Uh, today's program is a very special edition and one in which we have uh, sort of skirted the edges of and gotten into some detail with, actually. Uh, we are looking at the interface of politics, archaeology, and in this case, human rights, which is an issue that will become increasingly more significant as time goes on. Uh, today's program will talk about probably the most significant archaeological excavation that has gone on in a metropolitan area in North America over the past 20 or 30 years. And we are speaking about uh, a local project for me, certainly, because I'm based here in New York City. We are talking about New York's African burial ground and the struggle of human rights. The uh, pioneer in this area of research and in uh, broaching the connections between the archaeological excavations of the burial ground and the entire human rights issue is Dr. Michael Blakey, who has been with this project uh, since uh, it went into its analytical phase and a little bit before that, and we'll be discussing that in some detail. But by way of background, Dr. Blakey received his bachelor's degree at Howard University and a master's and Ph.D. from the University of, Ma uh, of Massachusetts at Amherst. Since 2001, Dr. Blakey has held a joint position in the Departments of Anthropology and American Studies at the College of William and Mary, where he founded the Institute for Historical Biology. Professor Blakey served as a principal scientific director of the New York uh, African Burial Ground Project from 1992 to 2004. He is currently a member of the Scholarly Advisory Committee for the Smithsonian's uh, National Museum of African American History and Culture on the Mall. And he has received numerous honors, including most recently the 2012 SANA Prize for Distinguished Achievement in the Critical Study of North America. And it is my honor and pleasure to welcome Dr. Blakey to the program. Well, thank you, Dr. Schilderine. It's a real pleasure for me to be here this evening. Dr. Blakey, I would like to begin with your entree into the project and um, what you, how you, how you got into it, and where the project was when you first got involved. 
Well, um, I was at Howard University on sabbatical, actually, uh, in 1991, yes. And uh, I received a call from a couple of journalists in New York um, uh, that October. I had uh, also just read a New York Times uh, news piece on the opening of the really beginning to discuss the African burial ground, and uh, they felt they had uh, perhaps a dozen remains. And uh, and uh, so the journalists called shortly after, um, and they were interested in, you know, these were African-American journalists, and they were uh, a little concerned that the black press did not seem to have been, uh, uh, um, I you know, uh, reached out to uh, at uh, the press conference uh, and uh, wondered who uh, that there was a discussion uh, uh, that they were aware of uh, folks wondering who the archaeologists were, who the physical anthropologists were. So they they called Howard uh, to get some idea of uh, um, what the qualifications were of the people involved. I uh, gave them names of uh, several individuals I knew had worked uh, with African-American sites, and uh, I uh, had committed to keeping my eye on how that project developed. Uh, Let me just say that I had, in the mid to late 80s, worked at the Smithsonian Institution with what was then the largest uh, African-American skeletal uh, population from a a cemetery called the first of the first African Baptist Church in Philadelphia. And uh, we had uh, learned a great deal. Uh, J. Lawrence Angel directed that work. Uh, um, Leslie Rankin Hill, who... I would continue to work with on the African burial ground, uh, uh, and I worked together at the Smithsonian on that project, as, as did several of us. And uh, we we learned a great deal. We also learned about some things that uh, uh, might have been done better had we had more time and uh, um, money to invest. So at any rate, uh, I'd come out of that project of 140 individuals we knew it uh, would be important to uh, for our understanding of um, the health conditions, at least, of enslaved African Americans to have populations of significant size. So here I was looking at a new population in New York, uh, interesting for its location, at least, but where they had there were 12 skeletons, um, and so it wasn't clear to me. Uh, what the research value would ultimately be. And um, there was also um, some indication of controversy, uh, some conflicts even in the the voices, in the questions that the journalists were asking me. And so I thought I'd keep my eye on that as well. I should mention that I had worked with the World Archaeological Congress um, that met in Southampton in London, England in 1986, bringing archaeologists uh, 
and bioarchaeologists like myself, together with uh, indigenous people, leaders of uh, Native American uh, and uh, Australian and Scandinavian and other indigenous groups who were seeking to have their ancestral remains returned to them from museums had also worked in 1989 with the Native American Rights Fund and the World Archaeological Congress to try and build bridges between the what became clear to me as the legitimate concerns of these of indigenous people and the um, reasonable interests also of physical anthropologists and archaeologists. So I had uh, that firestorm that led to NAGPRA in 1990, the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, mm -hmm. uh, was still on my mind. As so it all I, came together at the same time. It was all, so this appeared to, uh, you know, the, the African burial, and understanding also African-American, uh, the politics of African-America and its struggle over uh, the omissions and distortions of its history was also there and also something I've been concerned about. So as I, so I was committed to watching that situation, uh, not knowing where it would go, but it just seemed to me that something interesting was going to happen. It may not actually involve uh, the kind of you know, scientific potential uh, that would be important, but something, it seemed, was likely to happen. And then I turned back to the work I was doing on sabbatical, um, and um, I guess it was December when uh, I got a call from Peggy King Yorta, who represented the uh, a uh, the community committee that uh, Mayor Dinkins had established to talk with the General Services Administration who were responsible for the excavation and construction of the building on top of the cemetery. Um, and, she, as, and she spoke for that committee and one established by uh, 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 the then uh, State Senator David Patterson. And, um, so um, yeah. how, how far along was the project at the time that you actually got involved in it? Right. So at that point um, in December of 91, uh, when uh, Yorta called to invite me to get involved and do some assessments, there were somewhere between 150 and 200 uh, uh, remains that had been uh, excavated archaeologically. Mm -hmm. uh, so then it was clear that this was a this was a site of scientific importance, and her call reflected continuing questions about the the quality and direction of the research uh, that was uh, already underway. I know one of the things she asked me was, uh, "Can you really tell a person's race by um, essentially a couple of uh, measurements of the hip and uh, that uh, does not seem, did not seem legitimate to me at the time, but I 
you know, I probably said something to the effect of, I don't know how that would be done. <laughs> and uh, so, again, things, and, and the, the forensic anthropologists involved who are, as forensic anthropologists reporting to the courts and the police, are uh, among the most uh, interested in race. Uh, others of us were trying to discover history, uh, are more interested in, you know, the cultural um, identities of people and we can talk about that later, but so um, it uh, was, you know, it was interesting to see the the particular skills involved might not have been the the right ones for discovering the culture of those people. So I was uh, certainly happy to uh, um, join uh, with the excavation to do uh, to conduct some assessments, and it wasn't clear to me whether that just meant the skeletal assessment or certainly from Peggy's point of view, it was um, an assessment of the quality of what was of what was being done there and to help them uh, think about where, you know, the directions that should be taken. And uh, it was interesting that I was expecting a call from the uh, archaeologists or forensic anthropologists and and got none for about three months. Um, that began to worry me, and I finally called folks I, whose names I had seen in the in the Times. Right. And, uh, got uh, basically the response was, "Oh well, we were we know we were supposed to call you, but we you know we lost your phone number," <laughs> uh, and that kind of thing that I have heard before did not sure, inspire sure, confidence. But anyway, ultimately in March of 92, I went to the site and worked, um, I think it was for 10 days that I had available, and um, got to know the people and uh, what was being done and had a good sense of what the potential for the site was. By then, I think there must have been uh, 300 burials or so had been excavated. And, now, was the protocol pretty well set up, or how did you find it? What was your what was your sense of where the project was going when you actually showed up in the you you showed up in the field? I assume. What yeah. was your sense? Of, what was your sense of that? How it was going, and where it was going, and where the research plans were, and the analytical procedures, or weren't there any analytical procedures designed at that particular point in time? Yes. Well, so it was a. Um Clearly, a, a very sort of standard, generic uh, sort of recordation um, um, uh, involving excavation and uh, you know, uh, rec- you know, I would think about appropriate record keeping with some things that um, seem questionable. But let me put the uh, and much of it pretty standard. But let me sort of draw the context a little better. They were clearly, you know, these folks were working um, 11 hours a day, uh, seven days a week. Um, The research design that they had now, by that time, proposed, uh, twice proposed, 
in March maybe it was one time, had been rejected twice. And as I, um, and I can sort of describe my, my sense of the problem earlier by my later examination of the research design, the research design was about uh, 12 pages or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would compare it to the one that we put together with community input. That was 100, and, I guess 140 pages or so, or the one that I quickly put together for the spring of that year. That was about 45 pages. So it was 12 pages, and mm-hmm. of the 12 pages, three of them, uh, two and a half to three pages, had something to do with African American bioarchaeology. So the rest concerned the. Uh, the Crolius and Remy pottery and other artifacts that represented the European industries, the tannery, the two potteries, right. that dumped their waste on the burial ground. And these pottery, the pottery is important for dating elsewhere um, in the Northeast. And I understand that. But essentially what they were doing was pursuing the avenues of research they understood and had experience with that had little to do with what were ultimately, uh, you know, uh, over 400 burials of the earliest Africans in New York and among the earliest in, uh, in North America. So they didn't, clearly they did not uh, have the experience or the uh, training in that area, I will say the one person who was brought in, who had recently been brought in, with whom I had worked before, who uh, 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 directed the, who was then directing the archaeology, uh, had experience in excavating uh, African-American burials, but had no uh, no college training in um, the, either general archaeological theory or the specific analysis of African Americans. So, and then there were 40 uh, excavators. At by the time I got there in March, uh, they had uh, staffed up rapidly, and uh, more than half of them had not, about half of them, had not excavated, had not done archaeology before. Uh, the other half were brought in from various sites quickly. Again, the GSA was trying to move this, the remains out of the way of their construction as quickly as possible. Um, uh, I suppose there was, uh, you know, the, the low bid was the thing that uh, usually sure. the uh, client is looking for. Mm-hmm. And yet, so the evidence of all of that was there. I think there were two uh, non-white people on the site, two African-Americans who were excavating. And these were folks who had been construction workers who in their... Uh, you know, private sort of personal capacity had done things that sort of uh, showed care for the remains and 
try to look at, at after the remains. And it is good that they were brought over as excavators, but um, as it ultimately played out, it became clear to me that um, um, there was a preference if they had to have African, you know, there was an increasing cry for them to have African Americans. Well, if they were going to have any African Americans, it would be these who um, would really have little influence on the way the project developed. And so, um, so that's what I saw. Uh, and, uh, and so when I returned home, I, put, I knew that the, the research design had not been accepted, the contract for the analysis phase had not been uh, let. Uh, I had worked on large projects, including oh, back at UMass, we had a very large, the Dixon Mounds, a project with George Armelicos involved uh, a, a thousand individuals, but there was not the the uh, there were not the resources to really put all of that analysis together in one sort of one volume, one organized effort. And we're going to so, have to take we're going to have to take a break here, uh, real quickly. But we will sure. be back and continue with Dr. Michael Blakey on the logistics and the uh, emergence of a research design for the excavation of the African burial ground in New York City. Right after these words. Voice counts. Call toll free 1 866 472 5787. 1 866 472 5787. VoiceAmerica.com. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Come back to your senses. Imagine a radio show that will help you recover your common sense. Host Leah Brenda Smith is a health and wellness specialist who will explain techniques designed to help you recover from the stress of your life. It's all about how you respond to your thoughts. A little bit of self-awareness can go a long way in helping you to relax and enjoy your life. Tune in to Come Back to Your Senses Radio, live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Each week, Jimmy Gould brings you the stories and the people that you want to hear about. Tune in to A Current Life to hear about the journey to success, how our guests became the people they are today, and the highs and lows they experienced along the way. Each hour will leave you inspired and entertained as Jimmy gets up close and personal with every week's guest and shares ideas you can identify with and apply to your own life. A Current Life with Jimmy Gould airs Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Shake it, 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 shake it
listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. Uh, we're back. This is Joe Schildenrein with uh, my very special guest today, Dr. Michael Blakey of the College of William and Mary, who is uh, speaking about the uh, logistics, the research design, and the results of the very famous archaeological excavations at the site of the New York African American Burial Ground in Lower Manhattan here in New York City. Um, we were discussing the uh, involvement of Dr. Blakey and the situation on the ground, which was a, if not a classic contract archaeological situation, certainly one that uh, involved a lot of, uh, for lack of a better word, a lot of things happening at the same time and probably not enough time to digest and to involve the, the community Community in it, and uh, Dr. Blakey, you were speaking about your involvement when you got in, and what you saw, and how you started to essentially refashion the research design and the road forward from when you uh, came into the excavation. So, if you would continue, I'd appreciate. Right. So there, there were a number of ideas. I, I held a number of ideas about uh, how a bioarchaeological project could. Um, be better organized uh, with uh, proper, if the funding were adequate, to and the population size large enough to, to have really more meaningful results than some of the prior projects had been able to to achieve. And there was also an interest. Uh, I think it certainly relates to to that history of what bioarchaeology was doing. But I think much of this came from the way African diasporan scholars have been thinking about the world in an interdisciplinary fashion. And certainly the, the, the mix of humanism and science and art, that uh, these are things, uh, different uh, data sets that can be used to check one another uh, and, and to you know, lead to plausible Results uh, as we are. I was recognizing that you know that there's no magic bullet. There's no absolutely objective you know sort of uh, scientific uh, method. Uh, you know, some would privilege biology as the objective method. I mean, I'm principally a biological anthropologist. I probably got into it with that idea, but I realize that that is not not true. So all of the methods have are biased, and so uh, it, to do this correctly, one would need a variety of disciplines. So there's a kind of conversation taking place towards uh, finding the most possible uh, results. So this was clearly then by March, evidently a, a site where that kind of work could be done. On the other hand, um, there was you know enormous potential for doing this the wrong way. And right. my, my colleagues have, have often done that. Uh, there probably were times at which, in which I was on the wrong side of this, but had been learning 
of the ethical responsibilities of anthropologists um, uh, in the 80s and into the 90s and had worked at one point, worked uh, on a, uh, with, had gotten, had a conversation with Native American Rights Fund lawyers at the World Archaeological Congress in which it seemed that uh, the two principles seemed uh, correct. One is that descendant communities, and this is a term actually that comes from our project, mm-hmm. was uh, culturally affiliated community is the term that's most often used in the NAGPRA legislation. So right, it feels right. descendant communities do have, by virtue of all human custom, the right to determine the disposition of their dead. But the second element is that um, scientific research can be very useful, and I got into it with the idea uh, that uh, we could tell the stories of people like the enslaved of, for, about whom there was very little written record, but that what we might do is offer those tools to the descendant community, ask for their, what their questions are, uh, knowing that they have the right to make a final decision to see whether there are questions that our methods can answer that are sufficient uh, for um, a, a decision to, uh, uh, to allow us to do the work that would therefore make the project a, an ethical project and a partnership. And so um, uh, this was the, the direction um, I sought to take that project in. Did, did you find resistance to it, or did you find that the GSA and the people who were actually funding it were cooperative in that respect? Were they paying attention to what was going on in that at the time? I, um, I think the, the GSA early on uh, believed that it could lead the African-American community that met with them every two weeks, lead them on, as they did really for months, certainly the whole winter and in, and the spring uh, until uh, uh, in, uh, I think it was July of 1991, uh, Mayor Dinkins called for a halt uh, for them to call their work because they neither had an acceptable research design nor had they complied with the law's requirement that they be responsive to the community and they were simply leading them on. Right. And uh, but and that was at a point about the point at which I had become. Uh, I was talking um, regularly with GSA, and. Uh, you know, just before that, uh, I think it was at about that time that I, I told them, you know, you, you need to stop and uh, begin to turn this around and uh, listen to what the community is saying um, because, if you, because, you know, um, this thing is not going to continue to bend. It will, it will break, uh, which it did. You know, within days with, of that hearing, uh, Congressman Gus Savage then came, and that was in July, and um, required them to stop construction. And 
And then at that point, um, because GSA also thought it could, as a federal agency, disregard the mayor. Uh, so they were very hard-headed. Um, were they actually doing construction at this time? Oh, they yes, they continued construction until I think it was a meeting between Congressman Savage and the mayor and the head of GSA in Washington at Gracie Manor sometime in um, July of '92, and when when they did stop construction long enough to uh, they they determined to. Uh, not excavate any more remains. In fact, they reburied nine individuals as they closed out the site and established the Federal Steering Committee uh, that uh, began as uh, a, a number of cultural workers and from museums, uh, national and, uh, and New York museums, and uh, uh, some African American political, uh, uh, you know, the uh, influential people. And then at one point, uh, that was, I think, in October of 91, the community leaders who had been there all along uh, sort of got together at one of the meet at the first meeting of the steering committee and said, oh, oh no, uh, we will be involved in a very significant way and selected a, a number of them. I forget the total number, but the number of uh, those steadfast, concerned community leaders, citizens, uh, was uh, at least uh, equal to the, you know, the the good uh, 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 professionals uh, of on this kind of thing, and I think uh, altogether it was certainly a majority African American steering committee, whose concern was um, the preserving the dignity of the African burial ground, the dignity of those ancestors on whom rests uh, uh, the dignity of the living. And I sure. think we all, we all you know, uh, uh, some folks may not have gotten that. Uh, the scientists I brought in to have a discussion with the community about the development of a research design that might be approved uh, were all people who I chose based on their having the technical experience, mostly in the African diaspora, in the various mm -hmm. fields, but who had also shown me that they, whether they were working with indigenous people or African-American sites, that they, they got it, that they understood that uh, cemeteries represent more than an archaeological site, and they are more fundamentally uh, sacred spaces. You know, you raised you raised a wonderful point earlier, and 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 it's one that comes up in the in the Native American NAGPRA issue, and and one that you raised as well. And that is, what about the conflict between uh, enhancing scientific research versus an attitude that moved in the direction of let let the let the dead rest in peace and enough of the scientific study and let's just reinter them. Was that a problem or was that an issue or was there a legitimate uh, questioning by the uh, community about essentially foregoing the science and, and just reinterring the, the bodies or was that not an, an issue that emerged? Absolutely. I think the, the clear tendency of the uh, Af the representatives of African-American community who had sort of, I think, earned that right by their 
continuous involvement on this project mm-hmm. uh, was, I think the leaning was to rebury and to rebury immediately. Uh-huh. I think when I got there, um, they, you know, the archaeologists were not allowed to speak to visitors. Uh, the GSA had uh, been disingenuous in leading them on. Uh, they were, as they, uh, some of the community members would say, that these people are just picking over our ancestors. They would look uh, into the excavation and they would see um, 40 white people who, who, if they did get any information from them, didn't convince them that they knew much or cared much about the history sure. of the people that they were working on. And some of that must also uh, draw, uh, uh, cause one to think about their own life of discrimination in the workplace and that sort of thing. So uh, they were not happy with any of it, and uh, they were dedicated to seeing uh, the, the remains respected and there is there are customary ways of making that happen and that and that is a funerary custom of course yes which and so that's what they were set on when i came up first in march i also presented at one of those biweekly meetings i made our laboratory at howard university available uh, which you know and 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 uh, I began to talk about what might be learned, uh, but and th- that we were willing to be involved. I think um, had the process, had we not first uh, agreed, although I don't think there was, I don't think one could have changed the minds of the people on the steering committee. Had we not been very clear that we agree completely that the community makes the decisions. Mm-hmm. And had we not gone through a process of discussion of the research design with incorporation of their questions, uh, and uh, then I don't think there would have and established that you know res- a respectful relationship. I don't think uh, we would have had the the approval in the in the end that that we received. Nor would we have had such an interesting uh, and fine research design. Because the questions were, some of them were unusual. We found that the idea of origins, uh, well, that was one of the ones that was important to uh, the African-American community. What, you know, because many of these, uh, the, the origins of families, certainly the African origins of African-American families have been disrupted in a number of ways uh, by slavery and the removal, removal of uh, surnames and you know, mm-hmm. I'm a Blakey, but you know, I don't know what the various African surnames of my family were. So there is a desire <coughs> to make that that connection. But uh, when we we did use uh, mitochondrial DNA for on 40 individuals in pursuing that, and as well as craniometrics and dental morphology and cultural evidence, but we discovered that the um, Geneticists had never pursued that question. They might have been interested in admixture, 
but they were never before had uh, anthropologists or geneticists, let's say specifically, tried to uh, uh, determine the origins of African Americans in general or their their communities. So um, and so we began to get somewhere. Uh, I think we we didn't. Uh, have as much detail in our answers as we would have liked. Uh, part of it had to do with the, the comparative, the rough comparative data we had to deal with that was a result of what, uh, of the research that was being done in genetics that was pursuing com- very different questions. But we were also able to identify uh, ways to shore up those data so that we can, uh, genetics can, uh, uh, answer those questions better in the future. So we got partway there, and we were able to see how to get closer to uh, fuller, more detailed answers to the question, uh, genetics answers to the questions of African origins. But we would never have started that uh, pursuit had it not been, had we not asked the public what they wanted to know. And, and a lot of it developed in that way. And uh, in order to answer these questions as well about uh, origins, uh, quality of life, uh, transformation of culture from African cultures to an African-American culture, and, uh, and then finally the fourth was evidence of resistance. These were the most fundamental questions uh, that guided us. Um, uh, these also required fairly sophisticated methods uh, and uh, so, uh, in this way, the the more ethically uh, attuned approach uh, involving public engagement um, led to better science, I think. And we will be back with our very fascinating discussion on the African burial ground in New York City with Dr. Michael Blakey after these words. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Join us for Cruise Views, an exciting behind-the-scenes look into what makes your cruise vacation tick, as well as the guests, crew, and industry experts that are the sailing force behind some of the world's top cruise offerings. Cruise Views with Ken Muscat, brought to you by MSC Cruises, will help you make the most of your travel budget. Find out more about the state-of-the-art cruise ships sailing the high seas and get the inside scoop on the latest innovations and destinations. Ken will also feature surprises, including weekly giveaways and more. Join us Fridays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Are you a single parent trying to create the balance between home life and work life? You may be running a successful business, but how are your relationships with your family and children? If you're one of the thousands of people trying to juggle it all, tune in to Straight Up with Chris, real talk on business and parenthood, hosted by Chris FSU. Chris is the portrait of the success story, coming to the U.S. with no language skills, founding and growing several businesses while raising his daughter from age 7 to adulthood as a single dad. Listen every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. 
The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra goarc.com. Now, back to the program. We're back with our very special guest, Dr. Michael Blakey of the College of William and Mary, and we are talking about the evolution of the African Burial Ground Excavation Project and its significance, both in terms of human rights and in terms of the actual information that was procured and and, uh, studied by the team of forensic scientists, anthropologists, and archaeologists once the the remains were unearthed. And uh, Dr. Blakey, why don't you tell us a little bit about the findings and what we know about the uh, African community that was in heard in the uh, in the burial ground in in lower Manhattan well thank you dr. Uh, Schilderein and let me just say uh, for, to be uh, uh, I don't know maybe it's being a little testy that we we are not forensic scientists uh, that the skeletal biological tools that are used in forensics are very similar to those that are used in Bioarchaeology mm-hmm. uh, that seeks to understand, you know, the history of a population of skeletons. But those who do forensics are usually, you know, they are defined as um, when they're skeletal biologists. They're skeletal biologists who are identifying uh, individuals who are probably have some potential relationship to an illegal act. They're reporting mm-hmm. them to the courts and the police. True and. Um, and it's usually one individual or a few, whereas, uh, and they don't need the same kind of understanding of the cultural context. Right, of course. Uh, to interpret the remains or the statistics. So the bioarchaeologist is interested, not reporting to the police, but is right. interested in the, you know, we're reporting to, uh, to, to history. We're interested in reconstructing the communities, uh, Health and demography are part of the archaeological effort to reconstruct a, a, a people's or a community's history, and so we need to know something about that particular group of people, its its society and its culture, and we need to work with populations of skeletons. Of course, yes. Uh, and I just wanted to take pause to say that because this is a a frequent, you know, everybody loves CSI. I get so many students who want to do forensics. And many sure. of the methods, the basic methods determining age, sex, population affiliation. That's bioanthropology. Yeah. yeah. Of course. So um, uh, you were asking me about the results, I think. Yes. And we have, um, we have, um, so I'm sorry, and I, I know that, that, that wasn't, uh, those definitions work for you. I know you know them. I'm just I want to make sure that your audience is aware because sure. this that's is a very common, important that they know it. Problem. Yes. yes. So the uh, we did discover 
uh, though as I was mentioning earlier, in a less detailed way than we might have liked, the or African origins of the population, all of the, uh, there's a great deal of, let me start with the cultural data, there's a great deal of cultural data, uh, I mean, well, there's not a great deal of cultural data, but it, 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 generally they are poor populations, they have very few grave goods, but of what they have, um, there are several uh, burials that, uh, with uh, beads, uh, one great case of waste beads that are very distinctively African and, and not entirely Pan-African, but extensively uh, a, a, a practice that varies, uh, that, that is in many parts of, of West and West Central and Southern Africa, um, and Northern Africa, but um, I'll get to why we think these are uh, uh, West and West Central African. In fact, the waste beads that are, are sometimes given to a, uh, a woman by uh, the mother of her husband upon their marriage are passed down uh, from mother to daughter, but among the uh, Ashanti and among the Akan-speaking people, they are passed by the mother. They are they are often buried with that woman, and so we have a woman who has been buried with her waist beads. It suggests, uh, therefore, some a possible Akan connection. Um, filed teeth are fairly frequent. I think there are 26 individuals who have filed teeth, uh, and um, this is generally associated with African birth. We weren't able to, there's eight different styles. Some are pointed, some are wavy, uh, tooth shapes that are deliberately made. Uh, as aesthetic, um, uh, you know, as something that is meant to be beautiful and adornment, an adornment that uh, is done in adolescence. Uh, usually it's not done in the Americas, and there are speculative reasons as to why it stopped or slowed down. We have some evidence, that, however, and recently the work of Joseph Jones, looking at, dental, at the uh, chemistry of the teeth, shows that a few of these individuals appear to be American-born. Let me slip, uh, I'm sorry, shift uh, for a moment to some of the biological data that we use to interpret origin uh, in conjunction with these kinds of uh, uh, cultural data. The uh, uh, use of trace elements and stable isotopes uh, has gone on for some time, mainly in assessing diet, that what one eats, really the place in the ecosystem that one finds oneself while developing, uh, causes a particular chemi chemistry of that, of that food or that, that place to become part of the tissues that are developing at that time. And teeth develop in childhood, and then they they the enamel becomes inorganic, and so uh, whatever uh, it incorporated chemically in childhood, it remains and, and is not changed in adulthood. So your teeth 
and adults' teeth have signatures of exposures, environmental exposures in childhood. And uh, our project is, I think, the first. Uh, there may be a South African project, a Cape Town project, but I believe they, they used, they, I know they used artifacts, but the first to you look at human remains and the chemistry of teeth for sourcing, for identifying where that person was born and raised. And we see really uh, strong distinctions between uh, uh, the individuals who, are, who died as children and were therefore mm-hmm. probably born in New York and those who died as adults in a period of time when we know that most adults, folks who, folks who lived to adulthood were actually born uh, in parts of Africa. Can you, can you hazard a guess based on what you've done scientifically as to what the percentage of the interments were native-born um, Americans, if you will, versus Africans? So, um, I, I, no, I can't give you a number uh, uh, right now. I think mm. uh, Jones finished his doctoral dissertation uh, doing this chemistry um, one month ago, uh-huh. and uh, so and uh, I have I have only heard about some of the results, and I'm still so I will be looking at that, and maybe he can give that will give us what we need to know to answer your question sure. uh, from a sizable sample. In fact, it was uh, this was one of the parts of the project we had um, struggled to. Uh, have uh, the GSA uh, fund as they had committed to in the beginning. But uh, we did get a little of it funded in the beginning. And uh, so we were able to tell uh, that those with, um, to make the long story short, that those with filed teeth tended to be born in, and and you can only tell generally in Africa. Right. uh, And uh, because of the the geology of the soil that becomes incorporated in the, incorporated in the teeth uh, versus uh, you know most of the the children who died in New York uh, were were born in New York and um, the differences in lead level uh, are really extraordinary so that those uh, who did not have filed teeth those who died as children who were likely born in New York also have lead levels that are 70 times the lead levels of those uh, who had filed teeth, who were adults, who were likely born in Africa. And so, and this so is a a, Europe, a European technology involving solder, involving right. pewter. All of these sorts of elements were not familiar to um, the African societies that are. You know, they're using iron well, and they've got all kinds of technology, but they're not using these particular elements. So that, um, and there may be some, one of the things Jones is looking at is whether there are actually levels that would involve lead poisoning. So that's a story we'll, we'll soon see.
Well, we have to wrap up this story. Uh, unfortunately, we can't. We're just starting to scratch the surface on the science of of your work, and I wish we just had another hour to continue with that. And hopefully, we can pursue that topic at a later time. I hope you'll 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 want to come back, and we can discuss this very fascinating topic at, at, at greater length. It certainly warrants that. I want to thank my very special guest, Dr. Michael Blakey of the College of William and Mary, for appearing on this program and uh, acquainting the listenership with probably one of the most important archaeological findings in the New World, um, and certainly in terms of historic archaeology over the past half century. And thank you so much for participating in the program, Dr. Blakey. Thank you, sir. It's been a pleasure. I'm glad you're interested in uh, hearing more. I'll be happy to help out. We are going to contact you. For sure. Thank you so much. And uh, this is Joe Schuldenrein for Indiana Jones Myth Reality and 21st Century Archaeology, and we will see you next time. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones Myth Reality and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.